Hello, my name is Peter Abiel, and welcome to the Robot Brains podcast, a show about AI and robots and the brilliant brains who make them. On this week's episode, I sit down with Cade Metz. Cade Metz is the New York Times technology correspondent and author of the new book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Published by Penguin in the US and Random House in the UK, I assume it's available from all good bookstores and Amazon? You got independent bookstores, Walmart, Target, Barnes & Noble. There's an audio version for people who prefer that. There's, there's digital as well as hardback. So I got to say, Cade, I started reading the book and I just read it cover to cover. It's just an amazing read. It's this beautiful story of modern AI, what it is and, and the people behind it. And the, the anecdotes are so, so detailed and lively. I just cannot recommend the book any higher. I'm so excited to get to chat with you about the story. So really glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. And thanks for the kind words. It means a lot coming from you because you know this field so well. I'm excited to talk about it. That's part of what made it so exciting to me because I felt like maybe about 50% of the things in the book I already knew quite well, including detailed anecdotes, but they were so spot on that I was like, wow, that bodes well for everything else that I'm reading in this book. This is so exciting. The one the book it rem reminded me of is uh, The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, which did a very similar kind of thing, understanding how the Manhattan Project came about back in, well, leading up to World War II and during World War II. And we kind of have a similar story here, really focused on the people, but also getting technology across. And it's really amazing. We can go into this, but you know, one of the main characters, Jeff Hinton, he likes to use that Manhattan Project analogy, right? Oh, he does? Yeah, absolutely. So as I kind of together started here, the book is really about AI coming of age. And the prologue of the book starts in 2012, Jeff Hinton auctioning off the company started with his students, only selling it to Google. And it's just, in my mind, it's the academic of all academics, all of a sudden running an auction, <laughs> selling what he's been working on for so many years, at least part of it. And before we dive into the rest of the story, maybe let, let's make sure we're clear on what, what is this actually about? Well, he's selling a technology called deep learning and it has neural networks. What is a neural network and what is deep learning? That's the key question here to understand everything that unfolds, right? A neural network is an idea that dates back to the 1950s. And essentially, it's just math, right? It's a, it's a mathematical system that aims to recognize patterns. So a, a really good example is an image, right? The original neural network idea it was designed to recognize objects in images. So uh, the letter A, Right. And the idea is that you take thousands or hundreds of examples of the letter A, a visual representation of an A, and you feed that into your neural network and it learns to recognize what an A looks like. And in the 50s, this only worked so well. Right. And over the decades, the notion of a neural network in the estimation of the AI community and the tech in the tech industry, it sort of ebbed and flowed at various times. People thought this would work, and, and other times people thought it would never work. And then around 2012, when this prologue of the book you know, unfolds, is when it really started to work. And this same basic idea was demonstrated by Jeff Hinton, who was then a University of Toronto professor, and two of his students. And they showed 
that this idea, again, which dates back to the 50s, could recognize objects in digital photos. So recognize flowers and cars and people with an accuracy beyond any other technology. And that's basically what happened in 2012. Right. And so what you're saying here is that actually the same idea had been around in the 50s, yet 2012, it came to fruition in what is now known to many as the ImageNet moment. Can you say a little bit about what, what is ImageNet and what is the ImageNet moment? ImageNet was a contest, right? It's also, it's a bunch of data, right? It's, it's data that has been collected by researchers at Stanford. This data is just a bunch of images, right? And the idea is we're going to bring all these images together and it's going to help people develop technology that can recognize objects in those images. And there are a lot of ways of doing that. And Jeff Hinton and his two students applied a neural network to that idea. The data that was in that data set was essential to what they were doing. They needed two things to make this work after 50 years of struggle, right? They needed the data, which meant the photos, and they needed the processing power. And those two things converged in 2012. The data came from the internet, right? The internet produced all the images, essentially, that we needed to train a neural network to, to perform that task. But we also needed lots and lots of processing power. And that was available by 2012. You had three things converging, right? The people who had the desire to make this work in Jeff Hinton and his students, and we can talk about that, but you needed the processing power and you needed the data and they all came together and the technology worked. But even then, like, you know, not a lot of people believed in it. And that's what the book is about, right? Yeah, I remember. I mean, there were a, were a lot of doubters at the time, though definitely the ImageNet moment, the moment where it showed that it was two times more accurate than anything else before, a lot of people woke up to it and said, this is it. And that's, of course, where your prologue starts in, in some sense, because Google, Microsoft, DeepMind, Baidu, and so forth, they, they all went into that bidding war to get Jeff and his two students, Ilya Siskiver and Alex Shevsky, essentially acquihired, an acquihire of, of three people with Jeff, the professor, and Ilya and, and Alex, the students who, as often as the case, the students do a lot of the implementation and, and get advised by the professor to get where they really end up then. So when I think about this 10, 2012 moment, and I think back to the time leading up to it, the time leading up to it, there was a lot of philosophical debates, actually. People saying, hey, well, deep learning, mumbo jumbo, blah, 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 blah. You know, deep learning is very large neural networks inspired by the brain. Yeah, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's a good story, but it doesn't work. And this ImageNet moment really changed that and made everybody see what was actually happening. But actually, as you cover in the book, for people who were paying close attention, it kind of happened a year before that in speech recognition. Can you say a little bit about that? It's a great point. And it shows to me like how diverse, so to speak, the AI community is, right? It's not this monolithic thing where everyone agrees, right? It's a bunch of camps, a bunch of tribes. And in those days, you had the image recognition group and you had you know, the speech recognition group, among others, and they were largely separate. And you're right, before this inflection moment with ImageNet, these same ideas had started to work with speech. And it was done by exactly the same person, right? It was Jeff Hinton and his group 
who were not only showing that it could work, but who were actively pushing it into industry. It was just um, in a different part of the, of the tech universe and with a different company, right? It was Microsoft. Jeff and his students had shown that these basic ideas could work with speech, and they actively worked to push it in first to Microsoft and then other companies, uh, Google and IBM. But even after that happened, and you could see how well it would work with speech, the people in the image community were still skeptical, right? They didn't think it would work with, with images. That's a fascinating thing. And it shows a lot about how the AI community has worked over the decades, but also how it works now, right? You still have these different camps who are skeptical about this idea and many other ideas. And even though they might work in one place, they're not sure it's going to work in another. Very true. I would say it's changed a lot in the last 10 years and that you're absolutely right. Before 2012, the ideas people worked with in speech recognition and image recognition and robotics and natural language processing in other ways like machine translation, every domain had its own techniques. But then deep learning trained as large neural networks kind of changed that and brought everybody a lot closer together. Not everybody, you're right. There, there are always people who are still saying, well, I don't think this is the way to do it and so forth. But largely the community got a lot closer together and vision people are reading language papers and language people are reading robotics papers and so forth because it's, the ideas are so close now. That's not, I mean, that's, a lot of the inspiration came from that. And you covered this in your book, part of how Andrew Ng went around in those days was about relating this to the human brain, right? Absolutely. And, and that's you know, another theme that dates back to the 50s, right? This idea that we're going to build a system in the image of the brain. And that's why a neural network is called a neural network, right? It's supposed to mimic the web of neurons in the brain. What's interesting to me, though, and I think is a point that needs to be made uh, to people who are not familiar with the field, is that we do not know how the brain works. We as a people do not know how our brains work. And so the idea that we're going to build something in the image of the brain from the very beginning is a task that we don't know how to accomplish, right? If we don't know how it works, how do we know how to build something that works just like we don't? But it's a metaphor, right? And it's a metaphor that people like Jeff Hinton really believe in and have believed in for decades. And you're right. Some people take it further than others. And I think that Andrew Ng, who, by the way, was your advisor, right? I think you were his first PhD student. His trajectory, I think, is really telling, right? There's this one moment in the book where, you know, he is addressing his, his students at Stanford and, and neural networks come up and, and he basically says, there's one person on earth who knows how to make this work. And it's Jan LeCun, who was then at NYU. I remember sitting in that class. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, it shows the state of things then, right? This is, this is in the early 2000s. But then a few years later, Andrew Ng is one of the few people who's all in on this idea. And he joins this research group that Jeff Hinton created in Canada. And he's one of the few people in the States, along with Jan LeCun, who's part of this group and really believes in this idea. And then a few years later, there's Andrew Ng pitching this idea to Larry Page, the founder and CEO at the time of Google. And he's describing how this can change Google's trajectory, right? And he's talking about not only speech recognition and image recognition, but I've seen his pitch to Larry Page. He talks about it as a way to recreate the brain. And this you know, kind of AGI idea we talk about, artificial general intelligence, something that can do anything the brain can do. It's fascinating to see how that works 
And he is a good metaphor for the whole industry. He's a great metaphor and also fantastic PhD advisor. Anybody gets the chance to, to work with him. And a good guy, a great guy. Talk about a good guy. I mean, Jeff Hinton, the main character in the book, clearly, right? Um, every, everything ties back to Jeff. I mean, this success couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I mean, Jeff, whenever you meet him, he's super nice, whether he already knows you or not. I mean, first time I met him, he's just like, you know, I, this is Jeff, but he chats with me and is excited to, you know, talk about my research. And then, I mean, he was a carpenter for a year back in London. He studied psychology. He's a computer science professor, but he doesn't have a computer science degree as far as anybody can tell, right? He, he says that. I don't have a computer science degree. Right, exactly. Psychology. And so I think this also goes back to your point about inspired from the brain, even though we don't know how it works, but kind of Jeff's trajectory in the book coming from London to ending up in Canada is just fascinating. It is like of all the fascinating things you've already mentioned, you know, just in the past 30 seconds, it doesn't even get to the most interesting stuff. The guy is an incredible person in many respects. And what I, what I keep saying to people is that, you know, when you write a book, you reach this dark moment where you're not sure it's ever going to happen. You're, even if it does happen, you're sure it's going to be awful. What I kept telling myself was if I can just show people what Jeff Hinton is like, the book will work. Because you're right, it's about someone who embraces an idea. He embraces this neural network idea in 1971. That is the moment when the least number of people on the planet believed in that idea, right? He was pretty much alone. Completely alone. And he decides this is the way to go. For context, of course, it's not just that he's alone and the, the first one discovering. It had been studied in the 50s. And the, the common sense at the time was that this is an idea you, sh you should never revisit, right? Exactly. And he decided, I'm nevertheless going to think about this. And didn't waver from it for the next 50 years. He still hasn't wavered from it. I mean, he's still trying to push it in a new direction. That, to me, is fundamentally a great story, right? Someone who believes in something, even in the face of skepticism from everyone around them. And then you take into account, you know, the fact that he comes to the U.S., you're right, with this idea, and he finds a few other people who believe in it and eventually winds up at, at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And he has a breakthrough along with some collaborators that really take this idea to a new level, right? He, he develops this, uh, along with others, this back propagation idea, which the long and short of that is it helps neural networks work the way they do today, right? It needed an extra piece and he gave it an extra piece. As soon as that happens, he decides to leave the country, right? He realizes that the only way to do AI research in the US and at, at a place like Carnegie Mellon is to take money from Ronald Reagan's defense department. And he doesn't want to do that. His wife doesn't want to do that. And he goes to Canada. And one of the things I say in the book is that it changes geopolitics as we know them today because he left the country. That one person leaving is the seed of why the modern AI actually mostly started in Canada. Absolutely. And we're still, we're still dealing with that. And it's, a, it's funny how that one decision that he and his wife made you know, has repercussions you know, so many years later. Because you're right, there was hardly anyone working on this in the US. Most of the people working on it were in Canada or in Europe. And suddenly, when the big companies, you know, after that ImageNet moment, 
want the talent. They've got to go to other places for it, right? It's not in their backyard. And it all goes back to the decision of one person. It's amazing. And I remember actually, when you started working on the book, I remember we were sitting in my, my office at Berkeley, and you were doing some background research at the time. I remember at the time already, it was very, I mean, it was very clear, Jeff is going to be very central to this book. And you tell me this anecdote that stuck with me ever since. I mean, it's always on my mind saying, you know, Jeff has this amazing sense of humor. And I see, you see that come across in the book. And you mentioned this anecdote that's also in the book. And say, you ask Jeff, do you prefer to be called Jeffrey or Jeff? And Jeff writes a, or Jeffrey, well, Hinton, let's say, <laughs> writes a six-word response email. Six words. I prefer Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> that's the hint and right there. <laughs> you got it. Six words. That's all you need. Because it's a great point because, you know, one of the things I really believe in is that engineers, computer scientists, AI researchers are interesting and funny and fascinating in their own right, right? My father was an electrical engineer. He was a programmer. He, he was a career IBMer. And he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met. The stereotype of engineers and programmers is different, right? They're somehow boring and, and geeky. And what I wanted to do with this book, in part, is build it around people with that background and show that these people are worthy of such a story, just like anyone is worthy of such a story. And Jeff, we could go on and on about his technical contributions and the amazing twists and turns of his tale, but also he is a really funny individual and funny in a way where he's always like one step ahead of you, right? It's easy to read that email and miss and miss how funny it is, right? And so often when I talk to Jeff, right, sometimes it takes a while to penny, for the penny to drop because he's that one step ahead of me. Now, of course, talk about Jeff. A big part of the influence of academics is in the people they work with. It's their own work, but it's people they bring on board on their vision and then often also take it to the next level from there. One of the great examples early on in your book is Jan LeCun, who arguably had one of the first big successes, not an ImageNet moment success, but he had a success in the late 80s, early 90s with neuralness. Can you say a little bit about that? Yes, he's another fascinating character. You know, we talked about backpropagation, that missing mathematical piece that a neural network needed. As Hinton was working on that at Carnegie Mellon in the U.S., and before that um, on the West Coast in San Diego, LeCun was exploring a similar idea in France. LeCun was born in Paris, and you know, he was trained as an engineer, and he had similar ideas. And there's, there's actually a great moment in the book where the two of them meet, and, uh, and they go out for Moroccan food. And LeCun you know, has a little bit of English and uh, Hinton has no French and they managed to communicate. Lacoon even says, like, I felt like we spoke the same language because the, the language that they spoke was neural networks, right? And the belief in this idea. And, you know, Lacoon ends up going, you know, and after, you know, Hinton serves in an, as an advisor on his PhD thesis, which is a great story in and of itself. But Lacoon ends up going to Canada and doing a postdoc with Hinton. And then he goes to Bell Labs, right? which was then one of the most important research labs in the world. And, you know, he goes to Bell Labs, Homedale, New Jersey, 
and he builds a system to recognize images. It's a precursor of what happens 20 years later with the ImageNet moment, right? He builds a system to recognize um, images that really shows where this technology can go. And it's in large part his algorithm with, uh, you know, with tweaks that uh, Hinton and his students use in 2012. Lacoon, you know, makes this work in a way it, it hasn't worked before. And yet, you know, the technology a few years later enters another one of these troughs where no one believes it, right? And again, Lacoon, like Hinton, continues to work on the idea. He has that same quality that Hinton has, where he knows this is going to work, and it doesn't matter what anyone else is saying, he believes in it. And his papers get rejected from the academic conferences because others don't believe. Like, he has trouble putting his ideas out, actually, right? Absolutely. And, and that's another a great thread in the story where, you know, even he ends up, you know, wary of using the neural network name in a paper. Changes the name. Yeah. He changes the name <laughs> because there's so much animosity just towards, you know, the words neural network. You know, so when Hinton has that result in 2012, it's about Hinton and it's about his two students, Ilya and Alex, but it's also about Lacoon, Right. And Lacoon, in that moment when Alex, you know, unveils the paper, you know, Lacoon is there. He stands up. And, and even though some people are saying, ah, this doesn't mean what you think it means, he's there to say, yes, it does mean what you think it means. Finally validated. There is the evidence that the idea has been working on that people have been doubting and saying it's not an interesting research direction. And there it is. And it beats previous image recognition systems by such a large margin. It's, it's undeniable. It's amazing. Now, he changed the name from neural network at the time to convolutional networks and so forth. But one could say there was a little bit of a reason why people didn't like the name neural network. And this goes to another chapter in the book is this notion of AI winter, right? This, this notion of there had been some over-promising and then under-delivering. And can you say a bit about this AI winter concept and why that might have led to maybe people trying to avoid that from happening again and, and using that brain-like terminology? This is an important thing that I really want people to understand. And again, this is another reason I go back to the 50s. When the term artificial intelligence was coined, right, in the late 50s, you had this group of people who were sure they were going to recreate the brain, Right or at least recreate what the brain could do. And there was such a belief in that. And people repeated it, right? In the pages of the New York Times, when you know, the first uh, you know, neural network, the Perceptron, or one of the first uh, was being developed, you know, its inventor, Frank Rosenblatt, you know, he tells the New York Times, I'm gonna build a system that's not only gonna recognize images, but recognize speech and generate its own speech. And then it's gonna be able to create itself on an assembly line, and then it's gonna fly into space. And the New York Times just reprints this, right? And, and this is a pattern that you see repeated over and over again over the decades. And a pattern you see in Silicon Valley, right? As it comes to the fore in terms of just tech research in general and, and, and tech development in general, promises are made, people believe them, the press repeats them, and you reach this moment of extreme hype. But then everybody realizes, wait, wait, hold on. The technology doesn't do what was promised and the hype starts to, uh, starts to fall a bit. And as people sort of realize that the technology is not up to the hype, you can reach this trough where funding is, is pulled away from the research labs and belief in the idea really starts to deflate, right? And you reach this nadir, which people like, you know, they, they call an AI winter. And then the cycle starts again, right? Then the hype starts up and 
And so you get sort of this, this circle of hype and, and, and anti-hype, and then you go back. And we're living that, right? In a lot of ways, we continue to live the past over and over and over again. Exactly. And, and I think that ties to why maybe some people were not excited about neural networks at the time because they had, well, maybe thinking about it now, they didn't overpromise. They're doing a lot now, but they had overpromised, at least for the time being, overpromised quite a bit in the past and made these analogies that just led to these AI winters where people might have been, okay, well, any more of that and, and our funding will dry up again and we can't do any AI research anymore at all because everybody's disillusioned, right? I agree. Uh, you know, you, and you make a good point. It's not just about the hype bubble, so to speak. It's about the name, right? And I'm sympathetic to this, this argument that that name is misleading. And for that matter, the, the, the term artificial intelligence is misleading, right? In the eyes of the layperson. Um, it gives them a false sense of what the technology does, right? You hear artificial intelligence, you think, you know, uh, of a system that can do anything that you can do. And that's, that's not the case. Uh, a neural network makes you think the brain has been recreated. It hasn't, right? These ideas work in narrow areas at this point. We talk about image recognition, speech recognition. It's starting to help with natural language understanding. So understanding the way we we talk and write and being able to do that on its own, you know, those are relatively narrow. And just calling the thing a neural network can give people a false sense of where it is. And, and that's why I understand uh, being skeptical about that idea in 2012. My job as a reporter is to be skeptical about everything that's happening, right? And I think that's how you have to operate. And certainly you have to operate like that as, a, as an academic. This is not to defame anyone who didn't believe in the idea, right? There are reasons they didn't believe in the idea. The idea didn't work in a lot of ways. That's the genius of people who made it happen. They kept believing while it didn't work. They, they saw the longer term why this could work if they kept pushing while everybody else ignored it. And so I think that that's what's so amazing about the storyline in the book, that there are these people who, even though it's kind of normal to not believe anymore because all the evidence is stacked against it, they still believe. And then they come out at the end, you know, with everybody following them and saying, yeah, you're right. Now it, it really starts working. This is so interesting. I will say personally, when I think about artificial intelligence, I agree. It's, it's, it's complicated. What it is, it refers to something else for everybody. I tend to think it's maybe more as an aspiration. You know, work on AI, it's an aspiration to get to a true artificial intelligence is what you're striving for. And it doesn't mean when you're an AI researcher that you've already built a full AI system. It means more you're working towards more complete AI systems. But of course, that, that's, that's very, very subtle. It's well said, though, and it's a point that has to be made, as particularly to people who aren't in the field. They don't understand that that's the case. And um, what I try to do you know, with every story I write at the Times, but also with the book, is give people a real sense of what that word is and, and that notion that you just talked about. They need to know that it's aspirational. Yeah. And so, Cade, I'd like to kind of jump back to where the prologue started in your book, which is, which is 2012. We're in 2012. What's happened so far that, that is really in the moment happening? In some sense, Andering has planted seeds at Google about these neural nets, and they've started some efforts there. But then, of course, the big breakthrough happened with Jeff Hinton and, and his students. And there is then, soon thereafter, I mean... All these companies realize Google, Facebook, Microsoft. I mean, all of them 
realize AI is coming of age. They started to see that this is actually really different from the breakthroughs that happened before. And they start bidding on Jeff Hinton's startup with his students to get him and his students. Facebook jumps in in the next chapter of your book, hiring Jan LeCun. And then this kind of, it's, it's like a, maybe not a war, but a pretty fierce battle over AI talent that, that starts. Can you say a bit more about that and, and why was that happening? Yeah, I, I use the metaphor in the book of an arms race, right? It's uh, where the arms are the people, right? There's, you know, part of what's happening, you know, in 2012 is, is we have the data, we have the processing power, and then, you know, you need the talent too. You need people who understand this idea. And it's fascinating still, even though I spent years, you know, researching this book, it's fascinating to think about how these giant companies jumped on this idea and just went all in, not only, you know, philosophically, but with their, with their pocketbooks, right? I mean, you know, from that moment when Jeff auctions his company, that sort of sets the price for the talent. The, the figures, which you'll see in the book, are so high. But even then, you know, you realize that, you know, Jeff probably could have gone for far more. In hindsight, definitely. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. And what's so interesting is that, you know, there, there's because of everything we've talked about, right, that there were only a few people on earth who believed in the idea. That meant there was a limited amount of talent, right? It's supply and demand. The supply was low, the demand was high. And that meant that anyone in the field was going to be able to command a lot of money in terms of salary and stock and signing bonus. This amazing thing happens, I think, is there is Facebook who gets Jan LeCun, and Jan is able to recruit a few, a few more people, of course. Google gets Jeff Hinton and his two students and, and a couple more people, but there's not a lot of talent out there. But then actually this new entity emerges, DeepMind. And Demis Asabas, the CEO and founder, co-founder of, of, of DeepMind, I mean, he manages to recruit a critical mass of AI researchers that are deep learning researchers that are exactly in this space that there is a shortage of because there's been a lot of AI researchers, but kind of people were working in some sense, not wrong is maybe the bad way to say it, but they were not working in the right um, domain that was needed. All these companies wanted deep learning researchers, deep learning experts. There were so few of them and DeepMind scooped up almost all of them. And it, it just happened like the company gets started and that, that's what happens. And I think that's pretty mind blowing that you know, Demis Asabas went around and recruited so many people. I think he had 70 people or something. You're right. And, and even people who follow the industry may not realize that, right? That, that DeepMind at the time was this tiny startup no one had ever heard of, right? They get started around the same time that Jeff had his result with, uh, with speech, right? And so, again, the industry is very skeptical as a whole, the AI community is very skeptical as a whole. Meanwhile, there's this startup in London buying up all this talent before any of the big players even realize what's going on. Now, there's a consequence for that, which I think is interesting, in that DeepMind had all this talent, and then the big guns get interested, the Googles and the Facebooks. They're in a difficult spot, DeepMind, right? Because th those companies um, have deeper pockets, uh, to say the least. And so how are they going to hang on to that talent? Is it all just going to be poached immediately? And 
you know, I think that's part of the reason. And the founders of the company, you know, talk to me about this. It's in the book. They kind of had to sell to Google, right? Or sell to somebody uh, or risk losing all their talent. And so then that's, that's the next big moment, right? When DeepMind sells to Google for uh, $650 million. And DeepMind, a company that's only talent at the time, right? I mean, th there is no, nothing being sold. There is no revenue. There is no product roadmap, really. It's AI talent. You're right. They were working on a product, which actually they ended up jettisoning. Um, and you know, and they, they had a good result in, in Atari games, right? That's hardly a practical thing, but they had an impressive, interesting result in Atari games. But that's it. It is talent that Google is buying to the point where they didn't want the product group. Like the product was working on what was essentially a fashion app. Uh -huh. <laughs> Seems so crazy now. Somebody would have been working on that at that time. But yeah, for sure now some people are working on it and, and making money of it. But yeah, then it seemed a, a distraction. Your point is spot on. Google wanted, wanted the talent. And not just Google, of course. Many others, and, and, and DeepMind is in your book. Um, actually, the original checks for DeepMind which were written before deep learning became this thing that everybody realized is important. Those checks came from Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, among others. Of course, Elon Musk, probably the most famous tech person in the world these days, already pretty famous then, but it's pretty interesting that Elon Musk saw that early something interesting there and, and was involved in that. Absolutely. That is another fascinating thread uh, to see how he, um, and you're right, Peter Thiel really seeded this, right? Really seeded DeepMind. They needed his money. And that's a great story too in the book, how they came to meet Thiel. But then you're right, uh, Musk gets involved. And that's important too, because Musk has a, meta, a, a megaphone like few other people, right? And he comes to believe in this AGI idea, the notion that, which is, you know, deep mind state admission that they're going to build a system that can do anything the brain can do. And they're worried that it could destroy the universe, right? That's another part of this, this thread. There's this deep belief. And this is, you know, this is really centered around Shane Legg, one of the co-founders of DeepMind. This could be dangerous. And Elon Musk takes hold of this and he starts telling the world, right? That DeepMind is building this. This is closer than you think. It could be very harmful. And, and again, it's like in the 50s with Rosenblatt, right? The press starts to repeat this. And then we get this, it's almost like this anti-hype cycle, as I call it in the book, because it's, it's a weird thing to think about. But Elon Musk is saying, hey, there's danger here. But that ends up promoting the technology, right? It's very interesting. Absolutely. And just the level Elon Musk is talking about, which is effectively he, he brings in Terminator analogies and so forth. And that, I mean, now we definitely know it wasn't just, it's far out, those kind of things from when he was saying it, because he said it's seven, seven years ago. At the same time, at the level below that, the kind of narrow application where you see, I'm going to want to build a speech recognition system. I want to build an image recognition system. Things were starting to work. And in my mind, in my personal feeling where it really came, came of age that this seemingly going to work for at least every narrow application was Ilya Sitzkever, one of Jeff Hinton's students who was part of the, the team that was acquired by Google. Once he got to Google, I mean, he already thought it could work on pretty much anything. I mean, he, he's pretty similar to Hinton in terms of visionary and, and looking into the future and, and believing. And he gets it working for machine translation, right? Something Google has worked on for years and years and years. Specialized effort, highly specialized. 
And well, words are discrete tokens. And so far deep learning was about speech and images which are signals, like they're, they're, they're continuous, like brighter or darker, louder or soft. I mean, they're signals. It's very different from words. It's one word or another word. And a lot of people would say, well, words, that's symbolic, symbolic reasoning. That's a different kind of AI you're gonna need. But there's Ilya Sutskever and he just comes in and builds the world's best machine translation system with neural networks. And he gives this speech, as you allude to in the book at NeurIPS, which is the biggest uh, kind of highly technical AI conference. He's on stage in front of everyone. And he says, success is guaranteed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, you, you talk about six words summing up Jeff Hinton, right? right? Success is guaranteed. Three words to sum up Ilya. I just love it. Yeah. I mean, and there is so much packed into that, right? I mean, success is guaranteed. And obviously, I mean, nothing is, nothing is guaranteed. I mean, you got, you got to take a bit of grain of salt and so forth. But I think ultimately what he was saying and people start realizing is that you can make things work with neural networks, pretty much anything. It's about his belief again, right? It's, it's his belief that success is guaranteed. And we've talked about so many fascinating people. I mean, here's another one, like, again, in his own way. And, you know, in the field, like, you know this, and others in the field know this, right? You know, he is known for that catchphrase, success is guaranteed. And there is this great moment when he's given a speech and he says this. But what it's about is, is again, belief in the technology and what he's doing. And his, like Andrew Ng's trajectory, his trajectory is so interesting because you can see in the book you know, how his belief grows. And that's driven in part by what he sees at Google and how the company is acquiring talent and the amount of processing power the company has and the amount of money. And he sees what can happen when you build these big teams and you put that technology behind it. And I also love that you're pinpointing the, the translation thing. And this has sort of been lost in the mainstream that, you know, the New York Times did a story about Google's translation work. And, you know, Ilya might not even be mentioned because he had left the company at that point. That's often how it works, right? He gets expunged from the company's official version of history because he had left, left the company himself. But, you know, he is a, one of the driving forces of that result. And there were others working on this, as always, right, in, in Montreal and, and other places. And he had a lot of collaborators at Google. But it's another important moment, right? Again, we saw it work with speech recognition 2010 or so, with image recognition 2012. And then we have this moment a couple of years later with translation. And people were skeptical about whether or not, even despite the results in other areas, whether it would work with natural language. And then it happens with translation. And even after that, people are saying, well, okay, it works with translation, but it's not going to work with other parts of natural language. Now, you know, 2021, it's working with other parts of natural language, and we're seeing that continued progress. And one thing I think that started to emerge at the time also was, Ilya is the one using the, 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 the phrasing, success is guaranteed, but under the hood, I think an understanding started to build that if you have enough data, and especially data of form where there's going to be an input and an output. So every data point has two things, an in and an out, English to Chinese or French to English or image to, what is it, a cat or a dog, right? That kind of notion, that kind of data, which is called supervised data. If you have enough supervised data, it's very likely, or Ilya would say guaranteed, that you can train a neural network to capture that pattern, right? 
And I think people start to realize, I think more and more, maybe later than they should have, how visionary actually Fei Fei Li was with the ImageNet competition. Because I mean, in some sense, I mean, the coming of age of deep learning was triggered by that competition. And she was the Stanford professor who saw before anybody else, she started the competition even before deep learning was showing signs of life. You know, you must have talked with her about all this. I mean, what, what, what do you think happened there? Absolutely. And it's funny how her story echoes a lot of the things we've been talking about in that her advisor did not want her to build ImageNet. Okay. He thought it was a bad idea. You know, so again, this is someone who believed in an idea, was faced with skepticism and did it anyway. That was one of the things that had to happen in 2012 for that result that came out of the University of Toronto. You needed the data. And it was there because Feifei had built that data set. You're exactly right. And I love, I love how her own determination to build something mirrors, in a different way, the determination of people like Ilya and Jeff Hinton. Absolutely. And, and, and for people who, who don't work in academia, I want to give a little bit of context here because, I mean, there's this notion that when you start your professorship, the first six years, you got to get results that put you on the map or you'll be fired. And if you do great in those first six years, you'll get tenured, which means you have your, your professor job for, for life. That, that's the idea. And the idea is that that gives you academic freedom to, to experiment and so forth. And so a lot of people will go for the certain things, the acknowledged like important problems during the first six years of their career. And only after that, will they dare to venture into the more speculative things. But she did that in the first six years of her professor career. She said, hey, this is what I think matters. And everybody's telling me this is a waste of my time. And it's taking time away from writing the papers I could be writing that everybody's going to be more excited about, supposedly. And she, she just did it, right? And I think that that's amazing, this, this recurring threat of people just doing a thing other people were so skeptical about, but they were right. I completely agree. And that, that applies to so many professions, right? It applies in my own profession as a reporter, right? It's easy to go after the stories that everyone is going after. It's hard to go after the stories that no one is going after and that the, you're, all your peers are less sure of and, and skeptical of, right? Whatever field you're in, that is always an amazing quality to me. And it's an admirable quality. Plus, it just makes for a great story. You know, you know it's, and it's worth writing about these people who have that attitude and are willing, even in the face of their own you know, advisor, to say, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to do this. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and so now we're in this moment where in time and, and in your book, where I would summarize as success is guaranteed moment, which of course is Iliac, Siskiver's phrasing, but where people really start believing, collect enough data, supervised data, you, you can train neural networks to, to capture that pattern. It's in that context that you mentioned, interesting thing, apparently Elon Musk was sleeping on Larry Page's couch. I got to ask you, do, is, is, that, is that for real? Because I mean, I got to imagine that Larry Page has a spare bedroom in his house. But the book says Elon Musk sleeping on Larry Page's couch. How sure are you about that? I'm pretty sure because that reporting comes from my good friend and former colleague, Ashley Vance, and his, uh, his Elon Musk biography. In, in my field, you're very careful about what reporters you trust, right? Ashley, I've worked with. I know well. I trust that guy. Uh, his book on Musk is great. And that's where that information comes from. 
that's got to be a hell of a couch. I mean, that's got to be a <laughs> couch better than most people's beds. Right. No kidding. And their, their relationship is fascinating. And this comes up in my book and, you know, about the different ways that they see this technology and the way Musk gets involved. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, I have to tip my hat to Ashley Vance on that one. So Elon Musk is sleeping on that couch, but he's not only sleeping, they're talking. Your book describes how their viewpoints are really different. They have two very different viewpoints, not about the successes guaranteed about narrow systems per se, but about the long-term game of AI. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, again, you know, what I like about focusing on these interesting people is they become metaphors for the larger industry, right? If, if you look at this part of the book, Larry Page is about optimism, right? Elon Musk is saying, wait, wait, this could be dangerous. Those are two threads that emerge and really define a lot of what the industry is doing. It's a good kind of dual metaphor for Silicon Valley as it generally operates, right? And that optimism is a part of it. Make no mistake. You know, if you're building a company, by definition, you have to be optimistic. You've got to believe in your idea. That's the way you attract the talent. That's the way you attract the funding. And you see this as, as just a fundamental part of the Silicon Valley playbook. Um, and you're, you're discouraged from talking about the consequences and the drawbacks. And as your company gets bigger and as it goes public and you, and you develop these giant PR organizations to help drive your company, your, your company is geared towards only talking about the good things and voicing that optimism. And Google was getting a lot of good out of AI. I mean, their systems were improving. Absolutely. And we've talked about a lot of good things that have come out of that. But, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about this technology is there are so many questions about it as well. And it's so interesting to me how the idealism of people like, like Hinton, and we talked about this earlier, kind of clashes with these companies and their aims and, and that, that desire to be optimistic. And, and those are things we have to think about as well, right? From there, as Elon Musk is worried about AI, the bad, possible bad consequences of AI, the book goes into this story of a dinner at the Rosewood Hotel in Menlo Park, which is kind of a place venture capitalists tend to hang out and, and, and meet, you know, founders doing their pitches and so forth. This is not a venture capital story. Like this is Elon Musk, Sam Altman, president of Y Combinator, one of the, you know, the biggest uh, startup incubator in the world. And the two of them get together. Can you say a bit about what's happening in that room in that dinner? Well, everyone in that room sees what is happening across the industry, right? It's everything we've just spent the past however many minutes talking about. They see it, it happening. They want to know, can we get in on this? Like, we believe in this too. We want to work on this. Is it possible with the Googles and the Facebooks having bet so big on this and having spent so much money to acquire the talent, can we build our own lab? You know, a lot of the people who walk into that you know, that private dining room at the Rosewood, which you're right, is like a Silicon Valley cliche. That's where you meet to do these sorts of deals, but there they are. And, you know, Elon Musk, you know, shows up like an hour late. You know, he sits down and it's an open question at this dinner. Can we build this lab? And again, there are some people who believe they can. Ilya Suskopher is there and he's, you know, he's not just someone who wants to talk about this, but he's the type of talent that they want. And Greg Brockman and, and Sam Altman leave that meeting and they drive back to, to San Francisco and they say, well, we think we can do it. And then we get the creation of this new lab to kind of really challenge DeepMind in a way is a good way to think about it, right? 
but with a different mission. Yes. You know, the way they sort of frame it is that they're going to release all their research um, and kind of share it with the world and in a way that, that DeepMind, which is owned by Google, will not. That's how, they, that's how they frame it when they eventually release or eventually announce the creation of this lab. And it was interesting at the time also because in many ways it seemed impossible to get this started because so many big efforts already going with so many resources, yet there were Greg Brockman, Sam Altman, again, believing against many odds in some sense that this is still possible because nobody is doing this with a prioritization on making sure AI is good for everyone with the benefits distributed as evenly as possible. That's a mission nobody else has because these are all for-profit companies. This is our mission. This is what matters. And because of that mission, we, that's, I mean, we meaning Greg and Sam, we can attract talent that also really cares about this mission, right? And so there's this all of a sudden, and out of nowhere, there's this counterweight for these big companies. I mean, you've covered many OpenAI successes. I mean, it was a, a success came rather quickly, right? I mean, Ilya Siskiver was and is the, the, the lead of, of the research, all the research efforts, right? And it, was, it wasn't overnight success, but it was, it was quite amazing how, how this indeed was possible, right? And Ilya, you're right. Ilya is an important part of that, right? And I remember... Um, I was at Wired Magazine at the time covering this. And when I saw that he was involved, you know, I knew that that was serious, right? And it was touch and go as far as whether or not he was going to be involved or not. Everybody wanted him. I mean, it's a difficult decision. If everybody wants you, what, what are you going to do, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, how do you leave Google at that point if you're him? And You've had so much success there, right? I mean, and that, that whole story is fascinating, you know, which I detail in the book, but you're right. So then... Once you have Ilya, then you can attract other people. And, and again, it's about the talent. OpenAI you know, needed the talent, wanted the talent. In the beginning, it was about, about nine researchers, but Ilya was very much the keystone there. And it's funny how this, this continues to play out across the industry where, again, small amount of people uh, who know what they're doing in the field, and then an increasingly large number of companies that are vying for those key people. I think something really interesting also happened there maybe a partial so why, why it was possible from, from my perspective, looking at it is that this was still a very new field, right? And such a new field, as you also cover in, in the book, like some companies were kind of still stuck in their old ways of doing AI. And so a lot of the hottest talent would actually come directly out of PhD programs. Ilya was the exception, of course, being already at Google for a while and being the lead at OpenAI, research lead. But the other researchers and large came straight from PhD. They still had to finish their PhD. So OpenAI at the time sought out who, who are the PhD students who haven't finished yet. And so haven't yet built that relationship with any specific company where they, they feel happy and they don't want to leave it. They have a decision ahead where they're going to go after their PhD. And OpenAI kind of went around and identified, I would argue, well, many, if not all the strongest PhD students about to graduate within a year from when OpenAI was started and essentially recruited all of them, which was pretty amazing, right? It's true. And, that, and that's a, it's a good thing that you point that out in that, you know, lots of times you have a, a talent race uh, in the tech industry and uh, it's sort of the established people who are, are commanding the dollars. And certainly you had, you know, seasoned 
uh, people like Hinton and, and Lacoon who are, who are commanding top dollar. But in this field, it also was about, you know, PhD students fresh out of school, or you're right, people who hadn't even finished their PhD, who are, who are commanding the huge salaries and the huge attention. And-, and also making the breakthroughs, just to be clear. I mean, it wasn't just they were commanding salaries. I mean, they, they were, if you went to the conferences, they were the, the researchers behind the most coveted breakthroughs. Uh, as PhD students, they're students, but they were the leading researchers moving the frontier in new directions that were unexpected, very novel, very creative. I mean, I remember, I, I remember personally at the time, I, I effectively had almost exactly the who is who of who was hired at OpenAI that year give talks in my lab at Berkeley. Just like, okay, these people are super interesting. I hope we can, I hope we can either hire them as faculty or maybe get them as a postdoc if it's a little too early to be faculty, depending on you know how, how they see their career and, and so forth. Then when OpenAI announced who they were getting, I was like, yeah, that plan is not going to work. I guess none of these people I, I had come visit the, the, the lab to then, you know, hopefully recruit as a postdoc or professor to Berkeley uh, in the near future are, are going to show up here. <laughs> they were just recruited by, you know, Elon Musk, Sam Altman, Elias Huskiver, Greg Brockman to, to start OpenAI. And, and, and in fact, as you know, then I let myself be recruited by them. And then another person that came that I think really exemplifies this idea that you're talking about here is, is Ian Goodfellow. And I just love it that like, what are we, like an hour into this podcast and we can still bring up like incredible people and we could go on for like the rest of the day and we wouldn't exhaust all the amazing characters. You got to cover Ian's story in the bar. I mean, that, that story is fabulous. I mean, everybody wants to go to bars, right? I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people love to hang out in bars. They love to hang out in bars. And they may not know that, you know, you know, his work on what's, what are called GANs, which are a way of, you know, essentially generating images, a way for a machine, you sort of flip a neural network, you know, on its head and have it gen- not just recognize an image, but generate an image. And he, he has, you know, this incredible insight about how this could be built essentially with two neural networks, two dueling neural networks. One that's trying to create an image and the other one that's sort of evaluating that and telling the first neural network where it has gone wrong. And they go back and forth and back and forth until they have something that really looks like a photo. And he essentially comes up with this idea and he'll tell you this because he's in the book. And, um, and again, talk about a great sense of humor. The reason that story is so great is because that guy is so funny. And it's not just about the fact that he has, you know, had a few pints you know, at this bar in Montreal and he's a little buzzed slash drunk and, you know, goes home and tries to build this. It's the way he tells it. It's a phenomenal story. And he joins OpenAI a few months after OpenAI started, right? Exactly. And had been recruited by Facebook, um, personally by, by Mark Zuckerberg and hadn't finished his you know, PhD. He's still waiting for Jan LeCun to, you know, have enough time to, to serve on his, on his thesis committee. You know, it gets right at what you're talking about. Now, at that time, OpenAI is getting started. Yes, it's a counterweight for other companies, the, the big companies in the space, and, and with a very different mission, really directly having the public good in mind and so forth. But nevertheless, the, the biggest headline that comes up next, and is in your next chapter, actually, is AlphaGo. What, what's AlphaGo? People often ask me about AlphaGo because I was lucky enough to be there in Korea when DeepMind really unveiled the system. 
You were there. I didn't realize that. I was there. And what I tell everybody is that it was one of the most amazing weeks of my life. And I wasn't even a part of it, right? I, I wasn't a researcher at DeepMind who had helped build this machine. I was a bystander, a reporter watching this. And it was unbelievable. And for those who don't know, one of the longstanding goals in computer science and, and AI was to build a system um, that could crack the game of Go. The best way to think about Go is that it's the Eastern version of chess. And chess is another thing that AI researchers for decades worked on. You know, they wanted to build a system that could beat any human at the game of chess. And that ended up happening in the late 90s. Uh, when IBM built a system that topped Gary Kasparov. And I was actually there for that too, by the way. That was in New York. More than a decade later, uh, machines still hadn't cracked the game of Go. Go is a game that is exponentially more complex than chess. And you know this very well. Around 2015, when uh, DeepMind started to work on this, the thinking was that this would not happen for, for decades still, building a machine that could crack the game of Go. It was just too complex and DeepMind decides to go after this. Um, and again, Ilya Suskover is involved as well, but that's another, another story. It's in the book. But they start working on this system to build the game of Go and to crack the game of Go. And again, there's enormous skepticism here. And then, I mean, I remember getting the phone call when they first revealed in the pages of Nature that they, in a private game, they had beaten a very good player at Go. That alone was an amazing moment. That was a big surprise. But people are still skeptical. People are like, oh, it's a European. Exactly. And his rating isn't that good. And if you put this system up against you know, the top players in the world, it's, it's not going to perform well. Well, A, those skeptics were right. Okay, The system wasn't good enough to beat the top players. But what they're forgetting is, and this is a, this is a theme in the book, and it's a theme with what we were talking about. The trick here is that we're talking about systems that learn from data. And in the few months between that result, okay, where they beat Fan Wei, you know, the, the European champion, who's good but not great, the few months between that result and when they take the machine to Korea to challenge not only one of the top players in the world, but probably the top player of the past decade and go, Lee Sidol, who's Korean, in that short time, it's only like three months, they are continuing to train that system. And that means it's continuing to improve. And Demis Asabas, it's not even the day before, it's hours before the first match in Korea. We're sitting, we're sitting at, at this table at, at a restaurant, the Four Seasons Hotel in Seoul, and Eric Schmidt's there. And I ask, I ask Demis, like, a lot of people are skeptical here. What do you think is going to happen? I, he says, let me just tell you, this system has continued to learn, and it's going to be better than people think it is. And that just set things up for, I mean, just an incredible week. It wasn't just about the fact that they had built this incredible system. It was about the fact that the entire country was focused on this. Oh, I remember having a, a pizza watch party at the Berkeley <laughs> AI lab, streaming, streaming that, that first match. It was just, everybody was just like, what's going to happen? And, and we didn't even understand the game of course. We had no clue who was ahead. We had to listen to the commentators to get any sense of who might even be in the lead. But we're just staring at it not understand the game, just so much tension, so much excitement. So, yeah, take that excitement in that one room, okay, and extrapolate that to an entire country. That's what it was like, right? The whole country is focused on this because go to the national game in Korea. And, you know, it's one of their, you know, most important citizens who is competing against this machine. And we all as people 
can relate to that, right? And this notion that, you know, machines are going to sort of overtake us. And so as a human being, you, you pull for Lee Seedol. And then if you're Korean, you're pulling for him even more. And to watch, you know, this system at first, you know, win the first game, which was shocking, and then win the second one in this, you know, astounding way, you could feel the air come out of an entire country, right? It was really, I have to say, it was really upsetting, okay? Because, you know, we're all humans, right? And and we we pull for for our fellow person. And then to watch Lee Sito come back and win a game. Uh, right in a way that was just as astounding as the way the machine had won in game game two, it was a remarkable thing in every respect. AI had been very effective helping us out with machine translation, speech recognition, image recognition, and so forth. But even though those are very hard problems, and in fact many would argue harder than than games, they don't feel as hard to humans. But Go, it feels hard, and so you get this thing where. Hey, the computer is doing something that we all think is hard and, and actually beating us at it, which is so interesting. It's true. It's about it being hard, but it's also about, it's something that we all can relate to, right? We can understand the game, right? It's harder for people to wrap their head around a new advance in machine translation. You know, with a game, it's very simple, right? You win or you lose, and that's easy for anyone to grasp. And you could feel that, you know, in Korea, 60 million people watched it in China. Right. But also you could just feel you could feel things shift in the U.S. Right. And among reporters, even among my editors at Wired magazine, they had been skeptical about all this, you know, seemingly crazy deep learning stuff that, that my colleagues and I had been covering. We were so intent on covering it because we could see where it was going. My editors were skeptical. And that was the moment where even they said, oh, OK, we get it. And they get it. Because there's an important result there, it showed what the technology can do, but also it's easy to wrap your head around a game. It's interesting you referenced China there because it comes up in, in just a couple chapters later. What, what happens is some people argue that maybe still possibly an in the moment, not, not over the last 10 year span, but maybe an in the moment, even stronger Go player is in China. And I mean, DeepMind is, is part of Google at this point. Google has so much success with AI building products that are very popular in the US. And the way I read the chapter in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Google had a strategy I hadn't heard about before reading about this, where they thought, hey, internet was blocked in China. We, we couldn't get that done, but maybe AI is a, is a new wave of things and maybe we can now start selling our products in China also. And we're gonna do that by doing a Go event in China. And from there, we can grow our presence in China. But it didn't play out the way they thought it would. So say more about that. As fascinating as Korea was, I went to China as well. It was about a year later. And, and that was fascinating in its own right in a completely different way. And the dynamic that you're talking about, which is detailed in the book, is exactly right in that that comes from conversations that were had at the very top of the company, that they saw this as an opportunity. The week in Korea had been such a PR boon for Google. They thought... We can recreate this in China. We'll take this machine to China and this will give us, you know, sort of the, the currency we need to really make some headway in this country, which we pulled out of, you know, just a few years before. It didn't work out the way they had planned. It was a moment when the Chinese government kind of woke up to what was happening and really thought to itself, 
and this is all detailed in the book, you know, should we be supporting this company that is, is not a Chinese company, right? Um, is, in, you know, is a company based in the United States. Should we be giving them the PR that they want here? And there's, and I was there, right? There was a moment right before this happened where the Chinese government said, we are not going to broadcast this in the country. I talked to re- Chinese reporters who were there. They got notices that said, if you write about this, you cannot use the word Google. That's what happened in the moment, right? It's like the curtain came down on this event. And the only people in the country who knew what was really knew what was going on were the people who were there. You know, in this, you know, it's called a water town, this sort of ancient Chinese town south of Shanghai. You, know, you had to walk through metal detectors to get into this arena where this was held every morning. And there were a relatively small number of people there. And you got this feeling that you were the only person, only few people in this, in this enormous country who could really see what was happening. It was, it was a fascinating thing. That's so amazing. And while there is the, from a Google perspective, no success in China, it's fair to say that many of the Chinese companies have actually been really good at building AI technology themselves. And, you know, the Chinese public has access to AI technology just as much in the products that they're presented with, just it's hosted by Chinese companies, not not by Google, is at least the way it seems to be now, right? Absolutely. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that it, it wasn't like and a lot of people have gotten this wrong, I think, in the press. It wasn't like, you know, China was unaware of what was going on until that moment. You know, Baidu is there when Jeff Hinton, you know, has that ImageNet result, right? You know, it, it's so interesting to me that China and Baidu in particular have been involved in this from the beginning. Like we tend to think about, because this is the narrative promoted by these com- American companies, that they were there first. But it's far more complicated than that. And this is an international revolution, right? It's not about just American tech companies. You know, we've talked about where the talent was. It wasn't in the U.S. It was elsewhere. And China was involved from the very beginning. And, you know, we've talked about a lot of fascinating people, but there are so many fascinating people on that side of things who we haven't talked about. Chi Lu, who was at Microsoft and was born in China. Li Dang, uh, who was at Microsoft, born in, in China. You know, the list goes on. It's so interesting how this is this is by no means an American story. Well, if anything, it's be, be a Canadian story in some sense, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI, robotics, and the people bringing them into the real world. Now, at this point, AlphaGo is a way the public sees what's going on. But the public actually subconsciously is experiencing AI everywhere. Like AI is, by 2015... 2016, AI is in our everyday lives. I mean, we used to not be able to talk to our phones because they wouldn't recognize what we say, we'd rather type, but now it can recognize what we say. It can recognize people in images, help sort them. It, it can do so many things. And it's just embedded in, in our everyday lives, at least our digital lives at that, at that moment in so many ways. But with AI becoming something real, also a lot of problems came out. Right. Your next chapter kind of gets into that, that actually these AIs were maybe not as good as people thought they were in terms of how accurate they are and and issues they have. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, there are several threads to talk about here, but one thing that really comes to the fore is is the realization that because these systems train on human-generated data, right, 
pictures we've taken, pictures that we choose for our training set, right? We talk about ImageNet and we're pooling these images. Someone has to choose that, those images, right? Someone has to choose the sounds that are used to train a system like Siri that can recognize speech. And what people start to realize is that these systems we're building can be, can be biased against women and can be biased against people of color. If we're talking about systems that generate you know, media, whether it's a sound or it's an image themselves, we talked about you know, these generative models that can create images, natural language systems that can generate text, they can be toxic, right? They, they can say things that we don't necessarily want them to say that can be hurtful. And this starts to come to the fore. And it's a really fascinating thing that that the industry is still struggling with. We see this in headlines. Just in the past few weeks where these giant companies are struggling how to deal with this and people are saying, we need to think a lot harder about this because it's inherent to the technology, right? If you're building a system that learns natural language from books that people have written, from Wikipedia articles, from all sorts of content on the internet, conversations, it's inherently going to be biased because we as humans are biased, right? And there are holes in the way we see the world and and, and we spew toxic language. And if the systems are going to learn from us, it's going to learn our our flaws as well as our strengths. And in some sense, what what I like is that in some sense, this this common thread comes back again, because this is something that people were not really questioning. It, It was a blind spot, I think it's fair to say, even though it's obvious in hindsight, it was a blind spot. And then these three women, women of color, stepped in and saw that blind spot. There was Deb Raji, Joy Buolamwini, and Timnit Gebru, who have been more in the news this year, of course, the public seeing it now. But they start bringing to the fore, maybe they saw it sooner, but they start bringing it to the fore several years ago. And your book describes how, how for example, face recognition systems were not performing the way one would expect. Can you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, again, just so many interesting people to talk about and so many interesting stories. Deb Raji's story is so interesting when she's at this, this company called Clarify and she starts to realize this, right? It's just, you, know, you can just see that in our conversation we've had here today that so many people we're talking about are white men, right? And if you're a white man like myself, you're going to have a, a certain view of the world, right? And and your view of the world is, is going to factor in the, into the way you build these systems, what data you choose, where your blind spots are. And what Deb realizes in the moment is that the data they're using to train their face recognition systems and their content moderation system, which is a system to kind of identify toxic images, is that they're biased, right? Because the data that the systems are trained on is biased. And, and she starts to realize this. And others, you m- mentioned uh, Tim Neat and Joy, you know, who start to focus their research on this and uh, look at these systems and look at the biases and call attention to it. It's a huge part of this story. It's the women who realize the blind spots and actually realize that, yeah, maybe it's not the Terminators that are going to uh, we have to worry about today, but l- look at how much damage th- this can already do today by just being too naive about how we go about building AI systems, right? It's so true. And I love that you bring up the Terminator there because there's this great moment in the book where Tim Neat, you know, she posts this manifesto almost to, to Facebook, right? And she talks about that. She says, hold on, I'm not worried about the Terminator destroying us all. I'm worried about this problem in the here and now, Right. It's a great way to think about it. 
it's fascinating to me, you know, how we as a society still don't know how, how to deal with this and these companies don't know how to deal with it. It's such a hard problem, right? And there's no good solution at this point. And I'm really interested to see how this plays out and how these companies are going to tackle this. But it's such an important issue. So one way to look at it is no good solution. And of course, researchers are working on that. The researchers have built a good amount of understanding of this. And my sense is that the work by Deb, Joy, and Timney has given a, a good amount of understanding of what's wrong with the current systems. And we can already decide if we want to, some companies didn't. I mean, your book talks about Amazon saying, hey, you're not evaluating our system the way it's supposed to be evaluated. We have our own way of evaluating. We're going to keep using it, the Amazon face recognition system. And they, they went against that. And it, I mean, that's what you mean with, I mean, companies don't always understand, it seems, but it seems like we, we start to have a, while we have a long way to go, start to have a pretty good understanding, at least of the vulnerabilities of these systems, right? And how we shouldn't just blindly deploy them. The vulnerabilities are obvious, right? I mean, it's just like, there's no denying that, right? The problem is there. It becomes a question, you know, of how you deal with that. And what Tim Neat and others are saying is, is we have to slow down and we have to think about what we're doing and we have to address the problem. That has to happen. You know, I think these companies are still struggling with how to do that, right? People talk about, what I meant was, is that people talk about, you know, there is a solution. It's not that simple. It's not easy to remove this problem that everybody sees, right? Again, we talk about the over-optimistic nature of these companies. It's very easy to say, we can solve this. Well, show me how to solve it. I don't think anyone has a good answer. People talk about, well, we can use synthetic data or the like. We're still struggling with how to deal with that. And you know, I was just talking to a guy, you know, Jack Clark, who did policy at OpenAI, and you know, he does this thing called the AI index, where they sort of examine the state of the industry. And he points out that we just don't have the data we need to really analyze the bias in these systems. And we need to work harder to develop that, right? And to truly understand where the problems are and to solve them. You know, if we can't pinpoint this, we can't solve it. It seems like part of the problem, of course, is that with the data that's available, money can be made by building AI systems. A lot of money can be made, but at the expense often of underrepresented groups. And I think that's where people like Deb, Joy, Tim Need have started to jump in and say, hey, do you even realize what you're doing? Like, and now that you realize, are you finally going to listen now that you know what's up or are you going to keep, keep the money train going, right? It's, it's not just an AI problem. It's also a policy and a decision. Like it's decisions you make, right? Like with anything, you, you make decisions, w what you decide is your priority in life or for your company, right? Absolutely. And again, you pinpointed the, the issue, right? You know, there's, there's a profit motive here, right? You know, these companies are designed to build technology and put it out, right? And there's tremendous amounts of money to be made. So they have this incentive to put it out. And then, you know, you have people like Tim Neat and uh, her collaborator at Google, Meg Mitchell, saying, hold on, you know, we need to think about these other things. And that's the clash that you're seeing. And it's playing out in just big ways, and it's playing out in public even. I mean, it's one of the most important debates of, of the, probably the most important debate in, in AI of the last year is, is exactly centered around all that. You've got that exactly right. So yeah, I imagine if there's, if there's a future version of the book, there's going to be some chapters 
filling that part of the story, how, how that's going to play out. It's a lot of work to be done. Hopefully, hopefully it plays out the right way. You're exactly right. And, you know, you know, it's interesting in the book, right, there's this clash between Tim Neat and Meg and Amazon, right? Uh, it's exactly the same clash. It's just that it was with a different company, right? Uh, and, and then, you know, fast forward a few months, it's with their own company. And what we haven't said here is that Tim Neat and Meg Mitchell, who ran the ethical um, AI team at Google, they are no longer with the company. And, you know, that has been painted as a situation at Google, and it is. It's a situation at every company. This is something that Microsoft um, is going to have to address. Facebook's going to have to address. OpenAI, who's in partnership with Microsoft. All these companies that we're talking about. This is the big issue. Yeah, talk me about the mission of the company. Talk about mission of the company, right? You cover this thing called Project Maven, which is, I mean, I think fascinating in itself. What is Project Maven? What, what happened there? Project Maven is, is an effort to take these ideas and apply them inside the military. Okay. Um, these are ideas that can be extremely useful, to say the least, uh, to the military, right? If you can recognize an object in an image, that means you can, you can help your, your, your drones fly on, on their own. That means you can identify targets on a battlefield. It also means you can build autonomous weapons, right? Not only identify the target, but fire at it, right? Not to put too fine a point on it. What ended up happening is not too long after the, you know everything we've been talking about, Google started to work on a project inside the DoD called Project Maven, which confused a lot of people, including a lot of people at the company, right? It was an effort, and still is an effort, to build a system that can identify objects in drone footage. Some people have claimed over the years this is not for, for use with weapons. Some people say it is. The DoD is certainly moving ahead with this, and, and their intent, I've talk to people just in the past few weeks about this, is to put this in the field, right, on the battlefield. You know, at the very least, there's a fine line between, you know, just using this to identify a target and firing at a target. And so what you saw was the Department of Defense, the military, wanting this technology, and they knew where it was, right? It's in companies like Google. We've talked about this at length. That's where the progress was being made. And Google, among others, Amazon, Microsoft were involved in this, uh, as well as so many startups, you know, were working on the DoD with, with this project. Well, there was a big protest at Google, and a lot of employees took issue with this. And, and you know, it, it's a preview of, of this, this conflict we're seeing between Google and Tim Neat and Meg Mitchell we talked about, right? Where you've got people at the company saying, we have a problem. And there being this conflict between the leadership of the company and its employees. Google ended up pulling out of that project. Uh, not renewing their contract. And it's indicative of, of something, again, that's bigger than just one company. I mean, the military wants to be ahead, of course, of other militaries. And so they're going to try to find wherever the AI talent is to, to help them out. Um, it's, it's very complicated. Now, AI has had its share of winters. And what I thought were, were you know, over-promise, under-deliver, and, and it goes quiet for a while. What I found really intriguing in the book is that you hit this moment in 2018, I believe, where people are starting to say, well, it's good for image recognition, it's good for speech recognition, machine translation, it's all good, but maybe it's over-promised and under-delivered because there's so many other things we want to do. And just a few months after people start, you know, talking about that and making that like a topic, like, you know, deep learning has its limits, natural language processing has its major breakthroughs, All right, Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, I think this is particularly fascinating. We alluded to this earlier that, you know, people call them 
universal language models, right? And essentially it's just a giant neural network that learns from text, right? It learns the ins and outs of natural language like English by analyzing just reams of written English. So self-published books, thousands of books, Wikipedia articles, other content from the internet. These systems can analyze that, find the patterns in it, and then, you know, in some ways, learn how language is pieced together. And that can be used in a lot of ways, right? It can help the Google search engine um, to deliver you search results, the ones that you want, understand your query and give you what you want. But it can be used in more powerful ways as well, right? This is the way we're starting to build chatbots, right? A system that can carry on a conversation. And this is fascinating is that these, these giant models, they learn the, in broad strokes the way that, that language works in many ways. And then you can apply that to these particular tasks like conversation, right? And essentially it can learn from the way that humans uh, converse, you know, th through you know, the conversations that are available, you know, across the internet, we, this is, we converse on the internet through, through chat services and the like, the system can learn to carry on a turn by turn conversation. And it's not perfect yet, but we see, we see real, real progress in this area. And, and it's fascinating to see this play out as well. And so maybe for people who aren't that familiar with AI in terms of where they might see it in their daily lives, where it's under the hood as a reporter, beyond just writing the book? I mean, what are some examples where people might be interacting with AI today? The big ones I always bring up are, you know, Siri, right? When you speak in, speak commands into your phone, right? It can recognize what you say. That, that's a neural network at work there. Uh, you see face recognition uh, just on Facebook, right? If you use Facebook every day, you know, it can recognize faces and that's how that, how that works. But the Google search engine, as I alluded to, right? Those giant language models are already helping helping that system work and work in more pointed ways. Anyone who's used Google over the past several years has seen the way it improves. And that's in part because of these ideas we're talking about. But like the list goes on. There's been so much talk, and we can go into this more if you like, uh, about self-driving cars. This technology is fundamental to, to self-driving cars as well. And if we didn't have the, this neural network idea that we've been discussing, the progress of self-driving cars would be very, very different to say the least, right? A self-driving car or a self-piloting drone, which we also alluded to, they use those neural networks that do image recognition fundamentally, right? How do you recognize a pedestrian? And how do you recognize a street side? It's a neural network. All these things um, are, are drawing on this one idea that we've been talking about. And that's so fascinating, right? There's this one idea, neural networks, which some argue is the one idea that maybe the brain also has, but of course we don't really understand the brain fully. But this neural network that powers all these applications. If we look at what we see today, I mean, if you ask people, what is AI gonna, what do you want from AI? Probably a lot of people would imagine AI would bring a home robot that does laundry, maybe cooks, cleans up after dinner, yet we're not, we're not seeing a home robot. I mean, we have a Roomba that can scoot around the floor, but we don't have a, a butler type home robot, right? So in some sense, there seems to be this big gap between how AI for digital has really come of age already, but then AI for physical, AI robotics is what we like to call it, AI robotics seems harder. The physical world seems harder because self-driving cars have been promised for many years. And progress is made, but and so, so I'm curious how, well, how, how you see that kind of transition into physical. 
Yeah, I think it's fundamental to understanding what's going on here. And, and the, the self-driving car thing is a great example. And, and it goes back to this, this notion of hype we talked about. There was such hype around self-driving cars. And what I heard as a reporter and what so many reporters repeated you know, ad infinitum was that self-driving cars were going to be here by 2020. I remember a lot of 2020 mentioned a lot of 2020, like we're in, we're in 2021. I don't know about you, but if I walk out beside my door in Berkeley, I'm not going to see a self-driving car. What happened um, that I think people understand is that if you're a reporter, you got a call that said, hey, come take a ride in my self-driving car. And you, and you, and you got in and you circled Mountain View, right? You cir- circled a few blocks near Google's campus and you got out and you thought, my goodness, right? This is This is real. We're going to have these things, you know, I don't know, in a few hours. Well, the reality is that that little loop around Mountain View, California is contained and controlled. And there is so much chaos in our daily lives that you and I, you know, instinctually know how to deal with after years of living that machines cannot deal with, right? It's about that extreme uncertainty. And we talk about results like, like Go or chess. As complex as Go is, it's a contained universe. And our world is not contained in the same way. And there, there's just so many things that can, that can happen to me when I step out of, of my front door and get in a car that I know how to deal with, that a machine cannot, right? And there's a hope that as we continue to develop these things, and, and, and in part because of these systems that learn from data, like if we get enough data, the machine can deal with all that uncertainty, but we're not there yet, right? It's a really hard thing to do. And I think there has been enormous, pro- you know this, of course, this is what you work in, enormous progress in robotics, but we need to think about where that, you know, where that's really working versus where it's still aspiration. And there are certain things where it can work really well. And there are other places where it can't. Yeah, I distinctly remember sitting in, in my office at Berkeley with you, probably fall 2019. You had just covered this fascinating result from OpenAI, the, the hand solving the Rubik's Cube. And it's just mind boggling because it's hard for humans, but also for a robot hand, a five-fingered hand, controlling that reliably and all the contact forces, that was a very hard problem. And they cracked it. And so very exciting moment for robotics to see that happen. But at the same time, we're talking about how that's still very different from self-driving cars where things are far less predictable. It's you're in this new environment. And then I I remember you saying uh, at the time, if you can show me something robotics in the real world, AI robotics or AI powered robotics in the real world, I'll be very curious to see it. And I remember thinking, okay, well, that's, that's what we're working on at, at Covariant, of course. We're trying to bring these ideas into real world in, in warehouses. And I remember thinking, well, okay, that, that's going to be interesting because we might be able to do that. And then indeed, I mean, New York Times came and, and checked it out. And it seems like we're starting to get there with, with AI robotics, at least in more structured places like warehouses coming of age, even if driving is still a little too unstructured. Yeah. The warehouse thing is, is, is a good way to think about it, right? And that's not something the average person necessarily thinks about. But again, especially during this time, right, the time of this pandemic, I think people can relate to the fact that 
they rely so heavily on companies to ship them stuff, right? I mean, it's just like fundamental to our daily lives, right? It's like a new package shows up on my door seemingly, you know, every other day. And you have these giant distribution centers that have to do that for you, right? You have all sorts of goods coming in, and then they've got to go out to the right places. And the way it works today is, you, you know, for the most part, is you have people who do that, right? They have to sort through all the stuff that's coming in, get it to the right spot. Sometimes it waits in the warehouse for a while. Sometimes it goes out and, you know, you got to retrieve it. And, you know, there's so many moving parts there and you need people to do that. It may not be obvious to people, but if you put a, like a random collection of stuff on a table, you and I can easily sort through it, right? Pick stuff up, put them in a place. That's a very hard task for a machine, or it has been uh, traditionally. And there's tremendous demand again, right? A company like Amazon or FedEx or UPS and other retailers, we're at this moment where they need more people to do this than are, are really available in a lot of areas. And like I've seen that, you know, like here in the Valley, where there are all these distribution centers, you know kind of outside San Francisco, where there's not a lot of people, or at least they, they have trouble hiring enough people. And so there's this real demand for machines that can do that task, right? And you know this, of course, because it's the problem you're working on. But what we're seeing is the ability to take these ideas, a neural network, apply them to that you know, robotic arm that can sift through these, these kinds of uh, piles of stuff. They call it the picking problem. If you can do that, you know, that's something that, that, say, an Amazon, again, or a FedEx really wants. And it's a marriage of where the technology is progressing, but also demand, right? Sometimes there's a mismatch between the technology and what people want it to do. In this case, it lines up. I mean, we all want to keep getting things at our doors. And, and it also leads to one of, one of my personal favorite quotes in, in the book, of course, where, where you describe how Jeff Hinton describes when he saw the covariant AI system, in this case, doing the robotic pick and place. And he describes as the AlphaGo moment for robotics, where robots are going beyond repeated motion and actually interacting with the situation at hand. It's really true. And it, you know, it's funny how, you, know, you get, again, you get into the AI community and you realize there's, there's such a wide range of opinion and there's so much infighting and some people believe in reinforcement learning, as they call it, which is like, basically it's learning by trial and error, right? You can do this, of course, with robotics and the picking problem. You, you just have the system, whether it's in the digital world or actually in the physical world, learning just by trying to pick stuff up and failing and trying again. And, and that sort of extreme reinforcement learning idea, right? This done at a scale that systems have not been capable of in the past. That's something that Hinton didn't really believe in, right? He does this in his inimitable, you know, incredibly funny way where he'll sort of dismiss, you know, DeepMind with a sweep of his hand and, and the deep learning idea. But even he has come to recognize the value of this idea because he knows that we now have at least part of the processing power that we need to do that, right? It's something we didn't have in the past. And you've seen so many interesting results around that kind of trial and error learning that we didn't have in the past because we've got such enormous amounts of processing power. It's interesting to see his change in view there um, and then to hear him talk about it because it's just, it's just flat out funny. Absolutely. And I mean, one, one way to think of it is that that data is noisier because it's trial and error data. So it's, it's not as high signal as the typical data we would often train with. But if you get enough noisy data, ultimately, you can still extract the signal. Towards the end of the book, 
we kind of have this, I would say, celebration of these early pioneers with something called the Turing Award. What is the Turing Award? And what is that all about? The Turing Award, the best way to think about it is it's the Nobel Prize of computing, right? It's given yearly to the computer scientists or someone in a related field. In recent years, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with it, you know, it, it is a huge deal in the tech industry, right? You can't understate that. What we saw in 2019 was Jeff Hinton and Jan LeCun and, and Joshua Bengio was another collaborator of theirs, another person who really believed in this idea of a neural network. Their contributions uh, were recognized. They won the Turing Award as a, as a threesome. And uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be there the, the night that they received it, you know, and also talk to them um, when it was announced. And I, I did a, a piece in the, in the Times. It was fascinating to watch Hinton's reaction in that moment when he received the award. We've talked a lot about Hinton and his sense of humor. And there's so many other things we haven't talked about. His personal quirks and, and also his physical problems, right? He's got this back problem, which is uh, mind-boggling in its own right, and it plays into this story. And it's amazing how his sort of, he, 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 does, he literally does not sit down. I, that's the first sentence of the book. The, the man does not sit down because of this back problem he has. He realized that he had to, the only way to control this back problem is to stop sitting down. That means he can't drive. It means he can't fly because commercial airlines make you sit during, during takeoff and landing. And this plays into his effort you know, to evangelize, uh, you know, this technology he's building and bring it to these giant companies. He's got to travel, you know, across continents, across oceans. And how is he going to do this? Right. That's its own story. But then you get to this moment where he receives this award and it's a really emotional moment. And there's this other thread involving his wife, you know, who was very ill uh, with cancer as he's going through all this. And he talks about this in the moment. It's a really amazing amazing moment and an emotional moment. And that's the other thing, you know, we've talked about so many big ideas. We've talked about the people, we've talked about the humor of these people, but there's a lot of other emotions wrapped up in all this, right? You know, and, and relationships and, and not only conflict, but, but heartbreak and sadness. And it's as, as remarkable a story as any other. Yeah. So that's where the book ends, but I'm curious, having talked with so many AI researchers, pioneers in the last couple of years to write this book and, and, and also to write for the New York Times about the latest breakthroughs. How do you extrapolate to the future? If you were asked to make some, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, I mean, one thing I, I do see is, is where the progress is continuing, right? This is what you look for, at least in my mind, as a tech reporter, is where you see things paying off, right? And since I finished the book, We've already seen a really important result. One thing we haven't talked about is AlphaFold, which is you know this this result out of DeepMind again. This is essentially about drug discovery, and it's about applying these ideas to proteins, which are essential to the way the human body operates and the way that we fashion medicines and drugs that can deal with things that go wrong in the body, right? Viruses and, and other conditions. Again, it, it mirrors that AlphaGo result. They had a result there that people thought was decades away, a result on a problem that, that scientists had worked, worked on for decades and had failed and that people thought was still decades away, and they essentially cracked it. That's an area where I'm looking at things hard, and I think you're going to continue to see progress. 
What would be the impact? What's the impact of doing really well at this kind of protein folding prediction? How is it going to affect our lives? I mean, again, um, it's, it's something that we've been dealing with as a society for the past year, right? This pandemic, right? This pandemic arrives. It's a new situation, a new condition, and you have to decide how to deal with it, right? What existing medicines can we use with people who have COVID, right? How can we help, help them in the moment when they're trying to deal with, with, the, with the medicines that have already been approved for use? And then on top of that, how do we build a vaccine that can help us in a larger way? It's, it's something we've dealt with as a society over the past year. And the hope there is that the next time this happens, we can deal with it quicker, right? That we will have the tools, not only to repurpose the medicines we have, but to build new medicines like a vaccine. So that's uh, massive, right? If that can be made to happen, that might be the biggest thing AI will have done till, till that moment. What are some other things that, that you see? Well, the, you know, we've talked about the, these giant language models. That's an area um, where I'm really interested to see where things go. You've got so many companies working on, on that. They've got this enormous problem, the bias problem that we talked about that they have to deal with. That's where a lot of progress is. Um, where is that going to go? It's another area. And that's bigger than people think, right? Um, I just wrote a piece um, about uh, companies that are building, you know, autonomous flying drones for the military, right? As we pointed out, the military really wants this stuff. There are now companies that are working hand in hand with the military to do it. Where is that going to go? And, and what are we going to do about all the problems there and the concerns there? Um, and this is not a, a U.S. thing. It's a global thing. How are we going to deal with that as a society? Those are the three big areas, right? Biological sciences, natural language, and, and robotics. Of course, robotics has many challenges ahead, as, as we know, uh, as you alluded to, is self-driving and, and, and might start in more structured environments. So I mean, people might not want to hold their breath maybe for self-driving for, for next year just yet. It's a good point, right? With all this stuff, right, is that as much as we see progress, there are these huge questions that we have to answer as a society. And we're struggling with all this. And that's why I think that the book is important. And this field that we've been talking about is so important, is that these, these are huge questions we're grappling with. And it's not one question, it's many questions in all these areas, right? You know, natural language and the bias issues and, and the, the toxic language issue there. And when you get to robotics and self-driving cars, it's about safety, Right. How do you, how can you ensure that these systems um, are safer than human drivers? And, 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 and of course, um, you know, we have to figure out how to make these things, you know, not only, you know, drive around the block, but ensure they don't kill people. It's as fundamental as that. I originally put together my pitch for the book and, and sold it to my publisher when I was with Wired Magazine. And the pitch was great in my mind. And, and it was essentially what the first half of the book became. The book got so much more interesting as time went on. And we realized that all these questions were facing us, right? And that's what the second half of the book is about, is these big questions. But the other thing I always go back to is that it's about these, these people, right? As I pointed out, my father was an electrical engineer. And I always wanted to write a book about uh, about people like him, right? He worked on something different. He was a program at IBM, but one of the things he worked on that people will know is is the universal product code, right? The barcode that's on 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 every grocery that gets scanned when you reach the cashier. You know that was developed at IBM, and my father worked on that project. He helped test that project, and 
Um, he has these amazing stories about that. And I grew up on these stories. That's what I'm trying to do with this book is, is focus on the people building the technology and not only the great stories they have and the great moments they live through, but the, the questions they're grappling with themselves personally. You know, how do they see the way the world is, is embracing or raising concerns over the, the technologies that they personally build? That's what interests me. So, Cade, this has been just an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to remind everyone that if, if you want to learn more about AI and people behind it, Cade Metz's book is called Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. And you can buy it from any of your favorite booksellers online. We are dropping new interviews every week, so subscribe to The Robot Brains on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and feel free to drop us a review and share our episodes with anyone you think would like to learn more about AI and the people bring it into the real world.